Yeah, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Denzel, for those of you who don't know. Um, I'm a member here at Ecclesia. We've been a member for about maybe six years, I think. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so, so, as we draw closer to Christmas, I thought it may be helpful to focus our spiritual anticipations on, on Christ and his person and his work, and not necessarily start at his birth, but, you know, as we might usually do, but to, to start after his, re- his death and resurrection and then kind of make a round trip back to some sort of Christmas kind of theme. So um, the text will be in today's Luke 24, 44 to 46. That's Luke 24, 44 to 46. <clears throat> um, this text is usually used around Easter times, um, but I thought it might be fitting now as well as we're getting close to Christmas. Um, and, and as you turn there, I'm going to state my intentions. My intentions are, or my main point, or my focus this afternoon is that Jesus Christ is in all of the scriptures. Um, he's, he's not just in the New Testament where we see him present on the earth, but he is in the whole of the Bible from the first book to the last book. The whole of scripture carries the, the substance that a Messiah will come and will suffer and have, have a purpose to suffer for his people and to die and be raised for his people. And that is important because it's, it's concerning God and how he went about performing our salvation um, through the hope of the coming Savior and by nature, this concerns all of us because we all need saving. We see that from the beginning of time, God had a sovereign plan for sinful man in, in, in every part of the whole revelation of God. And this hope echoes continuously throughout the whole Bible. In this, God wants to show us his glory, his wisdom, and his sovereign power all throughout the, the, the Bible. And he wants for us to interact with it by being able to see it and meditate on it and to reflect on it so that we can enjoy and, and treasure God's great hope for us in Jesus Christ. And to, to not only treasure it, but to respond to it in an informed and affectionate and devoted way of, of worship of him. So that's how we're going to move forward today. Um, so I'm, I'm going to move, read the text and then I'm going to pray. So then he, being Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. From the dead. Let's pray. Um, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign. Um, you are king over all of the earth. We thank you for your, for your word that you've, you passed down from generation, these, these 66 books that show, that, you, that show you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that as I speak, you'd... you'd Speak to your people in spite of me, um, not because of me. And I pray, Lord Father, that you would just open up the hearts of everyone who is here to listen to your word and um, hear it and to respond with it, respond to it rightly um, as you ought. I pray for those today who are not believers, Lord, that you would open up their hearts to um, hear your word and to receive your great salvation through Jesus Christ. Um, I pray, Lord Father, that every, you know, every seed that you plant in, in the heart of everyone here will be watered by your word, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so before we look at the actual passage, so we understand where the context places us. So each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have different angles from which they look at Jesus. And in Luke's Gospel in particular, Luke aims to show Jesus as, a, as the fulfillment of a long-awaited covenant between God and Israel, stemming all the way back from Genesis 12, where, where God promised to Abraham that through him, God will make him um, his own people, and he will make through him a great nation. Um, and that in him all the families of the world will be blessed. Luke presents Jesus as this, this messianic king who wants to bless all the people 
through Abraham, so not just the Jews or not just people in Israel, but the whole, of the, the whole world. And he is the fulfillment of God's promised salvation um, that came all the way through history to earth. And he came to bring God's blessing to humanity, um, to bring God's kingdom and to bring God's good news. And we see this most clearly in Luke 4, 18, where Jesus is in a synagogue and he reads from the book of, of Isaiah, Isaiah saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now in that is two important words and the two important words are liberty and poor. So, so liberty in this sense or in this context refers to the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25, which was the year of release of people and property. So this is where all peop real property um, would be returned to its rightful owner and those who are slaves and compelled by poverty and debt were set free and regained their liberty. And in Christ's case, he has come to bring this liberty, um, but he brings a different kind of liberty, and it's a, it's a freedom for his people from slavery to sin and Satan, and we see that in John 8, 36. The word poor refers to those who are not disadvantaged only in economical circumstances, but those who are marginalized by religious society, those who are disenfranchised, the brokenhearted, those in bondage and poor in spirit, sinners who are devoid of righteousness and those who are sick. And Jesus fulfills this, this scripture from Isaiah as he, as he continuously throughout the book of Luke interacts with those in society who would be considered poor. So, you know, he welcomes and he eats with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and even people of other ethnic groups. And he heals people uh, who have no real or significant social standing like lepers and those who are lame and blind and deaf and who are, he, he casts out demons from possessed people, you know, just basically everyone who is, who is outside that acceptable religious circle. Um, and he expands this circle so that those who are considered poor can come into contact with God's kingdom. And the kingdom he brings out is, 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 a, is a very peculiar kingdom known as the upside down kingdom where, where God reverses our value systems. So in this kingdom, Jesus says, love those who you should hate. Uh, in order to find life, you have to die. In order to be a leader, you have to be a servant. And ultimately, God welcomes the poor, and, and, and he declares God's acceptance of them as they respond to his invitation to be part of his kingdom. So the religious leaders of the time, are, they're not really feeling Jesus' message of this upside-down kingdom. They, they, they don't really like it. They, they don't agree with his, his friendship or, or his interaction with sinners or... Um, his teachings, and we've reached the point in Luke of a climax where they plan to kill Jesus and then they do kill him. And here we're placed at our immediate context in Luke 24. After Jesus has been given up to be crucified by the religious leaders and is killed, he raises three days later from the dead and he is found risen by, by women who, who were another people who were not so readily allowed into this circle of acceptable religion. And they find that his body isn't there. And after this, he appears to his disciples twice. The first is on the road to Emmaus from verse 13 to 35. And the second um, is when he did, appears to more disciples later from, I think, verse after that. <laughs> so in, in both instances, he says quite similar things. In verse 26 on the road to Emmaus and in verse 46 later, he makes it clear that it was essential that the Messiah was to suffer and die and that then be raised and have his glory. In verse 26, he says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? In verse 46, he says, It is written that the Christ should suffer 
and on the third day rise from the dead. But in spite of this, it's quite clear that suffering is not something the disciples are really expecting from a Messiah that's supposed to save them. Um, on the road to Emmaus, the two disciples are walking together and they're having a discussion about everything that's happened on, on that weekend where Jesus was, Jesus was killed and they're distraught and disappointed and they're downcast and they're thinking, like, what are we going to do? And Jesus comes to them and they're, they're, they're appear, um, his appearance is, is hidden from, it, from them. And he asks them what they're talking about. And they reply, concerning Jesus, a, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people and how our, our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. And they're distraught because the one who they thought was going to be the Messiah is dead. And if he's dead, then their hopes are also dead as well. But then Jesus, in verse 27, rebukes them and says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. And even later when he's with his disciples, he says in verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. You know, Jesus had already said that he was going to suffer. In Luke, in Luke 19, oh, not 19, forgive me. In Luke 9, 21, verse 22, he says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and be killed uh, and on the third day be raised. In Matthew 16 and Mark 8, Peter rejects this fact and is like, Lord, that's, that's never going to happen to you. And Jesus responds to him saying, get behind me, Satan, because that is what Jesus was, that's what he came for. That's his, that was his specific purpose. But they didn't believe this. Sorry, actually, let's, let's just do this. <laughs> a sufferer was not what the Jews had in mind when they thought of a Messiah. They expected a, a mighty and boisterous king who was to victoriously overthrow the Romans over them and to set them free from captivity. They, they wanted a Messiah that embodied human wealth and human power to conquer their enemies and not a Messiah that has to go through suffering. They did not have a concept or category of a Messiah that would die under the rulers that he was supposed to destroy. But this did not fit what Jesus had in mind. Jesus did not come to satisfy Israel's craving for a national, political, or even military Jewish restoration. Rather, he came to radically transform the nation's spiritual climate by calling for repentance from confidence in their corrupt religious practices, useless traditions, and self-righteousness to trust in him. The difference between the people's understanding of Messiahship and Jesus' reality was so radical that the title Messiah is one Jesus used least for himself, preferring instead the Son of Man. So Christ tells them, this is exactly what the Messiah came to do, to suffer, that the writings of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms would be fulfilled, because this is what they're trying to say, that the Messiah should come and suffer and die and rise again. And he opens their eyes to understand the scriptures and allows them to, to comprehend that he, after his suffering and raising from the grave, is the fulfillment of all the scriptures, all portions of scripture, Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, all of these that sum up the Bible, this is what they're talking about. This is what they're pointing to. And here's the fulfillment. Here is where all of Scripture finds its fulfillment, and that is in Jesus. The Scriptures are about his coming and his sacrifice and his death and his resurrection, his kingdom and his reign. This is what the Bible is really about because all of it points back to Jesus. In verse 44, when Jesus says, everything written in the Scriptures about me, this suggests and signifies that the divine plan, the, the events that occurred in the Old Testament, and Scripture itself are about Jesus Christ. When we look at verse 46, the word thus, 
at the beginning of the verse in the Greek translate as the word, translates as the word hutos, which means in this way or in this manner or in this fashion. So if we were to read the scripture literally, it would say, in this way scripture is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. It, it, it doesn't say, some scriptures say that Christ is going to come and die. It doesn't really say that. It says the scripture is literally written in the manner of Christ coming and suffering and dying and raising to, to glory. Scripture is about Christ. Do not get it twisted. It's not about anything else. It is about Jesus. The Bible is literally written specifically in this manner. In John 5.39, Jesus says to the Jewish leaders, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you find eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. He's saying that the scriptures testify and give testimony about him. Even in verse um, 49 of the same chapter, it says, For you believe Moses. For if you believe Moses, you will believe me. Because Moses wrote of me. Moses wrote of Jesus. We see Paul saying the same thing as he stands before King Agrippa in Acts, 25, Acts 26, when he says, And so I stand here, testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer. Christ is the sun around which the whole of the universe of Scripture revolves around. He is the sun that gives it life and light. He is the beautiful rope that binds it all together. He is the final and the ultimate masterpiece that is culminated by the many brushstrokes of all that the Old Testament entails. It is him that is the center stage from the beginning to the end. He is the actuality and the consummation. He is the perfection of all the shadows and types and prefigures in the Old Testament scriptures. He is everything that the Bible is pointing to. John Piper has a, a, a few points as to how Christ's presence is in the scriptures everywhere. And the first is that all things exist because of Christ. And we see that in John 1.3 and John 10. And because all things exist because of Christ, therefore the Old Testament exists because of Christ. All things are created by him, through him, and for his glory. The second point is that Christ is one with God. Therefore, all that God does in the Old Testament involves Christ. When we see, that, when we see the revelation of God in the Old Testament, we, we understand that Christ is not an addition or an afterthought to that revelation. But as God is revealed to us, Christ is also being revealed to us. Because the Father and the Son are one. Which is why Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The third is that Christ spoke through the Old Testament writers. In 1 Peter 1, 10 to 11, it says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ the Spirit of Christ, in which in, in them was pointing to when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glory that would follow. Scripture is written, it's inspired by the Spirit of Christ, and through the prophets, it points to the Messiah. And the last point, point four, is that Christ is yes to all of God's promises in the Old Testament. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says, For all the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. That is why through him... It is that we utter amen to God for his glory. And there's so many other ways that he, he, he is in the scriptures, but time will not permit me to go into those. But my main point is that the Bible is a unified message of the gospel of God's grace culminating in the person of Jesus Christ. So now I wanted to qualify this point because it's, you, you can take this point in many different ways. You know, Jesus is in the, in the scriptures, you know, yeah. Uh, so 
if we know that Jesus is in the scriptures, um, does that mean that it mentions Jesus explicitly in every single passage? The answer to that is no. Most biblical references and, um, make no specific or, or most biblical passages make no specific or explicit references to Jesus Christ. So how then is it that, he, that the scriptures are about him? Now what I mean when I say that scriptures are about him is not that every scripture mentions him. We understand that the Bible or the books of the Bible were written by real people in a certain context to a certain people for a certain time, um, for a certain reason and purpose. All the authors did not have a, a, a picture of Jesus when they were writing. What I mean when I say that scripture is about Jesus is that scripture's central thrust, the substance of scripture, the, the final and ultimate goal of the Bible and its fulfillment is Jesus. The Christ is the consummate and integrating focus of the redemptive history of the Old Testament. So all that happens in the Old Testament in some way points to or is progressive toward Jesus. And we see this um, in two ways, and that's through, or at least today, we see that in prophecy and type. So prophecy is a, is a prediction or a foretelling of future events. So prophecy is just, just, just telling the future. Type, on the other hand, is the idea that people or events or institutions can, in God's plan, prefigure a later stage in that plan and provide the necessary outlook for understanding what, the, what God intended. So put simply, it's, it's a purposeful picture of what is to come um, so that when it comes, it can be more readily understood when it's fulfilled. So now it's, it's important with typology that we, we have to be careful because it can be easy to think of some sort of similarity between Jesus and any biblical situation. Uh, and, and, and that is not actually helpful. So if we take Noah, for example, we might say, God told Noah to build an ark, and the ark was made of wood. Christ came to down the cross, the cross was made of wood. I see you, God, I see you. That's, that's, not, that's not the kind of interpretation we kind of want, because you didn't really say anything, you just found two, two similarities. That's like saying, I have eyes, Jesus had eyes, Jesus is in me. That doesn't really make any sense. But what we want to do is that, is understand that not every single verse has a, a hidden or, or special allusion to Jesus, but rather we want to follow in the path of, of New Testament authors. So when the New Testament authors quoted the Old Testament, um, they didn't creatively assign meaning to, to that would fit Jesus, but rather they recognized that a proper reading of the Old Testament recognized Jesus as this true fulfillment of Scripture. So we don't just read Jesus carelessly into the Old Testament, but we realize that he is in there in its own terms, in the Old Testament's terms, he is, he is to be found, and that there are reoccurring patterns in Scripture that are telling of the Messiah. Um, so now we have to ask, what is so important about Christ being present in the, in the whole of the Bible? My first point in, in answer to that question is that it helps us to realize that the Old and New Testament work together to give us a, a whole picture of who God is, who we are, and how the problem of mankind's rebellion is, is resolved in Jesus. We behold God's plan in, in its fullness because of Christ, and it gives us a, a proper and healthy view of the Scriptures and stops, it from make, and stops us from making Scriptures about ourselves. Um, Tim Brindle says, we're, we're really good at making the Old Testament all about us. We read its stories and seek to muster up a, a moralistic application or example for us to imitate. Rather, the way the Lord Jesus reads the Old Testament is that it's primarily about Him and His death and His resurrection on our behalf. It's very easy to 
look at the Old Testament and, and get a simple application and be like, well, the moral of the story is, you know, and have that kind of attitude to, to it and apply it however you like and say, oh, you know, you read an Old Testament story and think, oh, I should make good decisions or, you know, I should be brave next time, you know? But that's not what the scripture is really pointing us to do. We might even take it to a deeper extreme and try to read ourselves into the heroes of the Old Testament. You know, growing up, I thought, you know, I was, I was David and all the exams I had or, or if there was a bully at school, is my Goliath, so I need to get some stones or something. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know. But that's not true. <laughs> and if I'm having a tough time, I might think, oh, I'm, I'm Joe because I'm suffering. And, you know, many people read themselves into the Bible and infuse themselves into the Bible. And I think on, on one hand... Um, we can identify with biblical characters and, our, and their lives and their feelings and what they go through, but it's important to know that we are not them and they are not us. They are, they are not many pictures of, of the problems that we face in our lives and they are not many pictures of us. These Old Testament characters and events are not to turn our attention merely to our own lives, but they are to turn our, ten- our attention to what they're actually pointing to, when someone's pointing, you don't stand there and look at their finger and think, oh, yeah, it's a nice finger, you know, yeah, it looks good, it's brown on the back, a bit light in the middle. It's like, you don't, you don't do that, but you look at what they're pointing to. And in a similar way, we appreciate that the biblical characters and events are what they are in their context, but then we know that they are an incomplete picture that actually point to the fullness and completeness of revelation in Jesus Christ. So we don't want to miss what the Bible really has to offer us. So knowing this and knowing that it was Christ's spirit that wrote the Old Testament, this should transform our view of the Old Testament as a whole and should transform how we read it. Because of Christ, the whole Bible makes sense. It is not a, a, a collection or compilation of random and interesting stories that have little to no purpose, but they hold so much meaning in the, in the big picture of, of God's salvation for man. So when you're fed up of reading Leviticus or Amos or Habakkuk, uh, we can hold to the fact that there is purpose here, that these books are actually a progression and they point to Christ. They all have their place in the, re- in the history of redemption and they're not just irrelevant and boring. I can't remember who said it, but there's a quote that um, I'm going to paraphrase. And it's like, Jesus was violently crucified and victoriously resurrected from the dead and he hastened to the scriptures. He, he ran, he hurried to the scriptures and I'm not sure about you, but if I died and I rose again, the last place I'm going to go is go and read a book. But this is what Jesus does in verse 27 of Luke 24. He opens up the text and is doing up Bible study with his disciples, taking them through the scriptures and explaining them and exegeting them, doing expositional teaching so that he can show himself. The Bible is that important to Christ that in his resurrected, glorified body state, he went straight to the scriptures. Jesus trusts the scriptures. He trusts the Bible. And this shows us that we can trust God and we can trust his word. God has been profoundly faithful to his promise that he made thousands of years ago um, to provide salvation for the people that sin, and that is us. And we can stand upon his word with, with complete confidence and belief, just as Jesus did. And as our view and our understanding of the Bible is transformed, it causes us more and more to see the glory of Christ You know, Christ is the preeminent eternal Lord, making himself known to us in varying degrees, through various ways, through different people at different times, in different contexts, in different genres, so that he might be put on display for us to see and to stand in awe of who he is. And as he helps us to stand in this awe, he wants us to live lives of true worship to him. 
The scriptures have this purpose to show how awesome and loving, gracious and holy that Jesus is. And this is what we need to see. We need to be able to behold Christ and his glory and to become so enamored and so fascinated and captivated by him and in him have eternal life that he has given to us by his son. So I wanted to look at a few examples of how the Bible points us toward the Messiah and how he will suffer. And the whole of scriptures points to Jesus. So there's far too many examples to pick from. So I only chose two. Um, and that's Joseph and Isaiah. So the story of Joseph includes allusions to Jesus both by, by type and by prophecy. So it, it, it foretells Jesus as well as showing Jesus in the picture, or namely in the picture of Joseph. So when we look at this story, you know, Joseph is beloved much by his father. He's hated by his brothers because of the favor he had with his father. He dreams dreams when interpreted mean that his brothers will, will, and his parents will bow down to him. And because of his dreams, the hate of his brothers escalates and they betray him and they plan to kill him. He is saved by Reuben, his oldest brother, um, from actually being killed and instead he's, he's sold into slavery. Yet in slavery, he remains obedient to God and God allows his hand to prosper um, and then becomes in charge of Potiphar's household. Then he is tempted by Potiphar's wife because... Um, well, she wanted him. Um, but because of his obedience to God, uh, he refuses to sin. And then in return, he's accused for attempted rape and is thrown into prison, even though he's innocent. However, um, even in prison, God allows him to prosper again, and he is put in charge all over the prisons. What, what, what prison have you heard um, puts a prisoner in charge of other prisoners? That's crazy. Um, then God allows that uh, he interprets dreams of the king's former cupbearer, uh, and Chief Baker, which both come to pass, and yet again he suffers because he's forgotten by the cupbearer who is restored back to the king, and he's left in prison. But God, in his sovereign timing, allows that he is remembered when Pharaoh has a, a distressing dream that no one can interpret in the whole land but Joseph. And the interpretation is that a famine is coming, and Joseph provides a, a, a wise solution for preserving the people of God, or the people, uh, the people of God, through the famine. And he is put in charge over the whole of Egypt. And because of this, people from all over are coming to seek refuge. And in this people includes his brothers who hated him, the ones who tried to kill him, and then sold him into slavery. At first, Joseph conceals his identity from them. But then he reveals to them that he is Joseph, and they are astounded and frightened of what he might do. But instead of giving them what they deserve, he does something else instead. He forgives them. And he states that somehow all of this was actually in, in God's plan in Genesis 45, 7 to 8. And he says, And God sent me here before you to preserve you, a remnant on earth, and to keep you alive for many, for many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord to all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Even in chapter 50, verse 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that people should be kept alive as they are today. All the suffering and adversity that Joseph endured um, was because of, sovereign's, because, of, uh, sovereign, because of God's sovereign plan to save his people. He says specifically that it was God that sent him. Not that God had a, a backup plan for his brother's wickedness, but God specifically sent him to save the offspring of Abraham, the people of Israel. And then we see this in, verse 40, in chapter 46 when his father and their whole family comes to Egypt. 
So here we see God's redemptive purposes in suffering. God uses the suffering of one man to preserve his people for his sovereign plan of redemption. He is even so profoundly sovereign that he uses the sin caused by the, by the people that he was preserving. These brothers that hated Joseph and tried to kill him are in a few chapters being preserved by him. Now this story is not meant to be looked at as an analogy of, or, of some sort or to, to be a, a moral lesson but it is a real story of God guiding real history for his redemptive purposes. At first glance, we see God's plan of redemption in the story because, because God redeems his people from physical death, i.e. from famine. But really, another redemptive purpose here is at play. And we are brought back to my first point. The whole of scripture is about Jesus. How is a story about Jesus, I hear you ask? <laughs> God is, God is fulfilling his covenant to Abraham, that through him all the people of the world will be blessed. Joseph's suffering is a setup allowed and used by God for more important events in history to occur. It is Joseph's suffering that allowed Israel to be in the land of Egypt, which becomes significant because in Genesis 15:13, God says to Abraham, prophetically, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So then after the Lord set up through Joseph, the people of Israel are, uh, who migrated um, to Egypt are there, and they grow in number, and then later become slaves in Egypt for 400 years. But God redeems them again from the slavery through a man named Moses. Through Moses, God gloriously destroys the reign of the Egyptians over them, and they exit from Eden, from uh, Egypt. After this, they, they wander through the wilderness and eventually are returned back to the promised land. And God again redeems them. Um, oh, yeah, he redeems them here as well. Then many, many years later, because of their disobedience, they are exiled. They're sent away from their land, from this, from this promised land. And God again redeems them and returns them back to the land. Yet again, many, many, many years later, they suffer Roman conquests. And it is this time from which, under the Roman conquest, we have the birth of the Messiah. It is from the same people that God moved to Egypt from their land in the story of Joseph that Christ is born, who was, he, who was not only to redeem Israel, but the whole of mankind, that's all peoples of all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and he expands this family of Abraham, as we see in the book of Luke. So from Joseph, Christ is pointed to. Jesus is also here in this story because um, Joseph is a type of Christ, and he is similar to Christ in that he is a suffering servant like Jesus is in Luke. Jesus, much like Joseph, is betrayed and sold into death that he might save the very ones that killed him. And not only the Jews who delivered him up to be crucified or just the Roman executioners, but also us because it was for our sin that he suffered. And just as after Joseph suffered, he was raised as head of Egypt, in the same way Christ too, after he suffered, is raised as head not over Egypt, not over Israel, but as the king of kings, as the sovereign, eternal, exalted ruler, sitting at the right hand of God on high in infinite glory and splendor after he atoned for the sins of his people to the glory of God and his infinite mercy and grace. This story is about Jesus. The substance here is ultimately about the focus on this coming of a Christ. Even in Joseph's dreams of, of having his brothers and his parents bow to him, we see this fulfilled in Genesis 42, but then, because they do actually end up bowing to him. 
But pointing forward, there is another brother to whom mother and father and brothers and sun and the moon and the stars will bow and the whole universe will bow to. So the point of this story, the point of Joseph's dreams ultimately isn't even Joseph, but it's the one to whom we all will bow. Even more so in this story, Christ has prophesied, you know, coming to the end of Genesis, Joseph's father, um, Jacob, is, is blessing his 12 sons, and there is a son in particular he, bless, he blesses called Judah, and he makes a, a very important blessing upon him. And this is in Genesis 49, 8 to 10. And it says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. What this is saying is that from Judah shall come one who, in verse 8, is triumphant over his enemies. In verse 9, he is like a lion. And in verse 10, he shall have eternal reign, and all people, all nations, will obey him. This is only important. This is pointing in only one direction, and not in the pop band. It's pointing toward Christ. All the, things, all the kings from Judah um, did not fulfill this. But there is one king from Judah's lineage named David, whose offspring will fulfill all of this, and his name is Jesus. He will fulfill the blessing of Jacob because he reigns eternally. He is the, the conquering lion of Judah, who through his death and resurrection defeats all his enemies and stands victorious and triumphant over all things. And he will have all the obedience of all the peoples from all nations. It is of this person in Revelation 7, 9 to 11, it says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped him saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And this is why in Revelations 5.5 it says, Weep no more, because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Is that not astounding that on so many different levels we see so many scriptures pointing to Jesus in such profound ways? This is why we can't settle for weak and self-centered interpretations of the Bible. This is why we can't settle for the interpretation that the, the story of Joseph means that God is going to fulfill your dreams of having a business if you keep on grinding. It's, just, it's not about that. It's not about your dreams of, a, of having a business or a career or success or prosperity. The point here is God's redemptive plan that will ultimately come through Jesus. As we look at the book of Isaiah, um, so the next one, um, we see the themes of, of God's judgment because of Israel's rebellion. And yet again, we see that God in his mercy is showing, showing them hope. God is, is angry with them. He's angry with this nation of Israel because of their sin, because they've, they've turned a deaf ear to the Lord and they offer meaningless sacrifices and they commit injustices. And the Lord punishes them by allowing them to be exiled for 70 years. But in his grace, he returns them back to their land. And on top of that, through Isaiah, he speaks a message of mercy and hope in that he's going to save 
He's, he's going to send a servant, specifically a suffering servant, who will suffer and die and rise again on behalf of his people, reuniting them in their relationship with God. And he gives them the hope of, of a new heaven and a new earth for his people. So we see the suffering servant in, in, uh, in these scriptures. Uh, Isaiah 42 from verse 1 to 4. It says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. The Lord's chosen servant here doesn't point to Isaiah or to Israel. It points to this coming suffering servant. This servant has God's spirit upon him. He is meek and gentle. He, he does not oppress or overpower those already beaten down and weakened. He does not come in, in mighty and boisterous apparel or ways, but comes humbly. Yet he will bring perfect justice to the earth once and for all. Does that sound familiar? Isaiah 52 from verse 13 to 53 verse 11, it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and exalted. As many were astonished at you, his, uh, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Skip to um, chapter 53. Who has, believed, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the, Lord, who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb he was led, like a lamb who was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he not he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has been put to grief when he makes his soul an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This speaks of the coming one who God has to send because of our sin. All we, like sheep, have turned away from God. There is none good. 
There is none who seeks after God. We are sinners both by nature and by choice. And this separates us from God because he is holy. We, we cannot be reunited to God by good deeds because they do not amount to true righteousness or true goodness. Our good deeds before the Lord are as filthy rags and our sin is wicked in his sight. Because of this, we, we all have stored up for ourselves the just punishment for sin, which is eternal separation from God, which is an eternity in hell. And if you're here today, this is, this is you, this is me, worthy of eternal punishment because we have sinned against a holy and righteous God and there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Yet because of this prophecy of the coming servant in, in Isaiah, like Joseph, we can say, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus the Messiah. God in his mercy has sent his beloved son, whom he spoke of from the beginning. He is the expected one to suffer the punishment that we deserved and to be crushed so that the wrath, of, the wrath and anger that God has at us, has aimed at us, will be absorbed by him. And his righteousness accounts for us. And he rose again from the grave so that sinners like you and me might know God and relate to God through him. Because of him, the, the gates of heaven are wide open. And if you do not know God, you must repent, which means to turn away from your sin and believe in him and his work and his death and in his resurrection. Constantly and repeatedly throughout the whole of the scripture, through its happenings and its stories and its prophecies, there is a resounding message of hope for sinners who have turned from God. And this extends also to us. And this is something that we, we as humans can identify with because, you know, just like in the Old Testament, we need saving um, because we sin, but we also feel the effects of sin. You know, we, we live in a cursed world full of pain and loss, and we stand hopeless in the face of it because it's as though the evil never stops. And not even just on the outside that we can't control, but within ourselves. You know, we can't even be our own hope because we sin and we let ourselves down. You know, we face continuous suffering. We face crippling and we face crippling sickness and disease. You know, we, we see and face death and assault and war and natural disaster and rife poverty and lawlessness. We see and face racism and sexism and oppression. We, we, we face lying and stealing and murder, injustice and corruption. To whom or to what can we look to or, or place our hope in? And here is our answer from the beginning of time. The, the answer that scripture gives us is Jesus. You know, we must look to, to, to this coming suffering servant, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And what makes this significant for us here in Lewisham is that, you know, God came to save us, one, but it's, it's also amazing that in, in his suffering, he doesn't just suffer in a detached and personal way, but he relates to us in our suffering. Tim Keller says, a God who suffers pain, injustice, and death for us is a God, is a God worthy of our worship. In a world of pain and oppression, how could we give our highest allegiance to someone who, who, has, who was immune to all of that? This is a God who knows what storms are like because he came into this world and dove straight into the greatest pain and suffering. Because of his self-substitution, we can have life. You know, and this is the sense that we get when Isaiah says, a bruised reed he will not break. 
What other God in any other religion suffered for his people to save them and to relate to them? The answer is none. Only Jesus did that. Jesus is the, is the amazing and perfect savior. He is the long-awaited, expected savior. He is the constant theme throughout the whole of scripture. He is the very grace of God. He's the very mercy of God. And we celebrate his coming. At this time of year, we, we can have the same joy that Mary had when she was with child. And this child was the very grace of God himself. We can cry that the promised Savior has arrived. He has seen the reign of sin. He has heard the cry of man, even though mankind is wicked and sinful. And he has come to save us. This is why Mary praises God in Luke 1, 47 to 55. It says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humblest state of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of, of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. See that Jesus is a the constant theme. This is how Zechariah in um, Luke 1, 68 to 75, through the Holy Spirit said, Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old, as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemy, might serve him without fear and holiness <laughs> um, and righteousness before him all our days. This is why Simeon, who had eagerly been waiting for the Messiah, wouldn't die until he saw him in chapter 2 of Luke, um, verse 29 to 32, said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for of revelation for the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. We can rejoice like them because he too is our savior, come as a baby to, to suffer for our sins so that we might be reunited in relationship to God. So if you are here today and you don't know the Lord, I pray that you receive this gift of knowing Christ and that you're able to reflect on what was said. This is God's grace to us because we do not deserve heaven, but Jesus suffered and died according to the scriptures so that we might receive him. And to all of us, I pray that God would reveal his son to you in his word, through his spirit. It is all about him. It is all about his glory, so that he can satisfy our hearts with joy and peace. And as I conclude, I wanted to read a short excerpt from um, a J.C. Rao track called Christ is All. In every part of both testaments, Christ is to be found, dimly and indistinctly at the beginning, more clearly and plainly in the middle, fully and completely at the end, but really and substantially everywhere. Christ's sacrifice and death for sinners and Christ's kingdom and his future glory are the light we must bear on any book of scripture we read. 
Christ's cross and Christ's crown are the clues we must hold fast to if we would find our way through Scripture's difficulties. Christ is the only key that will unlock many dark places of the word. Some people complain that they do not understand the Bible, and it's because they do not use the key. It was Christ crucified who was set forth in every Old Testament sacrifice. Every animal slain and offered on the altar was a practical confession that a saviour was looked for. It was Christ to whom Abraham looked when he dwelt in the tents of the land of promise. It was Christ of whom Jacob spoke to his sons as he lay dying. It was Christ who was a substance of the ceremonial law which God gave to Israel by the hand of Moses. It was Christ of whom the judges were types, Joshua, Gideon, Samson, and all the rest who God raised up to deliver Israel from captivity. All were emblems of Christ. It was Christ of whom David, was, David the king was a type. It was Christ of whom all the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi spoke. I charge every listener to ask themselves what the Bible is to them. Is it a Bible in which you have found nothing more than good moral precepts and sound advice? Or is it a Bible in which you have found Christ? If not Christ, then you are like a man who studies the solar system and leaves out of his studies the sun, which is the most important of it all. Jesus is the consummation and the perfection of all the scriptures. So I'm just going to pray. I invite the worship team to come up. Um, yeah. Lord, we thank you that you've given us the Bible we thank you that you've revealed yourself. You've revealed yourself to us, Lord, in your word, in the great person and work of Jesus Christ. And I pray for all who are here, that whenever they read a Bible, that they be reminded that it is about you. It's not about them. It's not about me. It's not about just great moral lessons. But it is about you and how glorious and sovereign over everything you are and how brilliant and masterful you are that through thousands of years you are able to keep constant themes and then reveal it to us in the person of Jesus Christ, born as a babe in Bethlehem, Lord. We thank you, and I just pray that you would um, lift up the hearts of everyone in here to you, help us to become so enamored with Jesus. That is, that is why we read the Bible, not to just be good Christians, but to become enamored with Jesus, to become more in love with Jesus, to see him more and more, we thank you that you are all over your scriptures. Help us to change the way we, that we read the Bible and help us to do so for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.